Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. It's a wonderful time of the year. Uh, good to remember the resurrection of Christ, also to celebrate uh, the dawn of spring here in the United States. I hope you all had a good weekend. Before I dig into the podcast, I want to remind you that if you have not yet left a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, please do so. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button. It all helps with discoverability. I really appreciate it. I talk a lot about the cultural change theory of University of Virginia sociologist James Davison Hunter. He wrote a very good book called To Change the World, which I recommend that everyone read. It talks about how culture changes. It also talks about how the evangelical church has attempted to change culture using theories that really don't work because they're not aligned with, with reality. And then he lays out a proposed approach to the modern world that he calls faithful presence. Now, I'll just be straight up honest with you. I'm not a huge fan of the faithful presence approach, but this book is still a must read because this is a very smart guy writing on a very smart topic. And I want to read you a quote that comes not from the book itself, but from a talk that he gave uh, several years previous to it under the same title that talks a little bit about his theory uh, of cultural change as a top-down phenomenon. So I will read a little bit of that. Quote, It is sometimes true that political revolutions and economic revolts occur from the bottom up, but on their own terms, they are almost always short-lived. Long-term cultural change always occurs from the top down. In other words, the work of world-changing is the work of elites, gatekeepers who provide creative direction and management to the leading institutions of a society. The Renaissance, the Reformation, the Awakenings, the Enlightenment, the triumph of capitalism over mercantilism and feudalism, all of the democratic revolutions in the West, the rise and triumph of science, and in our own day, the triumph of the therapeutic postmodernism in law, architecture, literature, and popular culture, and now globalization itself, all began among elites and then percolated into the larger society. Unquote. And this is very important, and this provides a lot of justifications for various people in the church and other fields to say we need to penetrate elite institutions. We need to be present in elite places like Manhattan because the key to society is the elite. The key is the top institutions. And you know what? There is a lot of truth in that. That's a very important part of the world that we need to understand. But I think that the image that this conjures up in our minds as to how cultural change works can mislead in certain circumstances. It really makes you think that innovations and cultural changes are developed initially within the elite themselves, which in case some cases is actually true. That a professor at Harvard comes up with a theory, 
And the next thing you know, all of society is forced to genuflect to it. But in other cases, change actually originates outside of the elite, originates far from the elite on the margins, and is only later adopted by and ratified by the elite. It may be true that unless you get some elites on your side, your endeavors are not likely to succeed, but it is not the case always that change originates in the elite. And in order to illustrate this, I want to just read a, uh, some passages from a person by the name of Eric Hoffer, who takes almost the diametrically opposite view of Hunter, and I think provides an interesting other perspective on the problem. So Eric Hoffer was known as the longshoreman philosopher. Uh, he's the famously uh, the author of a book called The True Believer, uh, which got hot back around 9-11, uh, was purported to explain uh, fanaticism. He's a very interesting character. I believe he may have been the children of German immigrants, but he grew up speaking German, so he spoke German. He kind of inexplicably went blind for a while and then recovered his sight. Not really clear what was going on there. He ended up in California where he worked as a migrant farm worker uh, and in fact lived in Hoovervilles during the Depression, basically living in federal homeless encampments for men like him. He sort of hit the big time uh, during World War II when he got a job as a longshoreman on the docks in San Francisco, and then as a union man uh, for the rest of his life, sort of had a secure position. But even when he was uh, wandering around picking beans and things of that nature, he would always go to the libraries and read. He was uh, quite a, uh, a literate person in that way. He loved to read books, self-studied, uh, autodidact, uh, don't believe he had any real formal advanced education, but he then began to write uh, a series of short books and essays that I really enjoy because when they're short, uh, they're written in a great style. He uses a lot of aphoristic writing and they make a lot of provocative, challenging assumptions about the world. Uh, not assumptions, but observations about the world. And again, I'm not gonna say that everything this guy says is totally accurate or that I endorse everything that he says, but I like to think about the perspectives that he offers. One thing that I really enjoy is his perspective on the nature and character of the intellectual man. And again, probably not totally original to him, but one of the ways that he says intellectuals behave or is that they want to be taken seriously as the prime movers of society. And one reason that the intellectuals have always hated the United States is that the United States rewards and valorizes the man of action, not the man of ideas or the man of words. Whereas communism, even when it persecuted its intellectuals and its dissidents, took them seriously. And I believe his, his line is, you know, the intellectual man would rather be persecuted than ignored. This idea that the intellectual man desires above all to be taken seriously and treated with high regard and high status in a society, I think is you know kind of an interesting way to think about what motivates them and what's really important to them. And of course, America has never really been the land 
uh, of the intellectual in terms of public acclaim and status. But one of his books is called The Ordeal of Change. And in fact, I'm holding a copy of it up for the camera so you can see it. You can also see it's very small. It's an essay collection. The Ordeal of Change is actually one of uh, the essays in it. But towards the end, he has a couple of very interesting uh, essays, one of which is called The Unnaturalness of Human Nature. And in The Unnaturalness of Human Nature, one of the things that he argues is that essentially failures, uh, misfits, outsiders are the locomotive or the engine of human progress. So I want to read a couple of quotes from you from from that essay. Uh, Quote, Since it was man's unfitness, his being an outcast and an outsider on this planet, which started him on his unique course, it should not seem anomalous that misfits and outsiders are often in the forefront of human endeavor and the first to grapple with the unknown. The impulse to escape an an untenable situation often prompts human beings not to shrink back, but to plunge ahead. It is the unique glory of the human species that is rejected do not fall by the wayside, but become the building stones of the new, and that those who cannot fit into the present should become the shapers of the future. Unquote. And I, I guess you picked up the allusion to the Bible there, that the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. This idea that the people who didn't fit in, the people who didn't make it big uh, in the standard things of society are the ones that go out and pioneer the new. Another uh, quote I will give from that. The inept and unfit also display a high degree of venturesomeness in welcoming and promoting innovations in all fields. It is not usually the successful who advocate drastic social reforms, plunge into new undertakings in business and industry, go out to tame the wilderness, etc. People who make good usually stay where they are and go on doing more and better of what they know how to do well. The plunge into the new is often an escape from an untenable situation and a maneuver to mask one's ineptness. To adopt the role of the pioneer and the avant-garde is to place oneself in a situation where ineptness and awkwardness are acceptable and even unavoidable. For experience and know-how count for little in tackling the new, and we expect the wholly new to be ill-shapen and ugly, unquote. And again, let's not take this too far. Many social innovations and changes, in fact, did originate from people that you would think of as very successful at what they're doing. Bored, third-generation, WASP heirs, for example, often were pioneers of social reforms, like the Settlement House movement, uh, which heavily was promoted and uh, started by people from the upper classes. The idea that people from essentially elite backgrounds don't drive change uh, isn't totally true. Nevertheless, uh, change often does come from people who failed uh, at more conventional paths. You know, why did I start my company? Because I went bankrupt. 
How many times have you heard of the person starting a company because they got went bankrupt or because they got fired from their job? I got fired. What am I going to do? I guess I have to start a company. I have to create a job for myself. That sort of thing. And one of the examples that he gives in another essay is of pioneering new lands, the kinds of people that pioneer new lands. The essay in the book that comes right after this uh, is called The Role of Undesirables uh, in Society. And he talks a little bit about his own experience as a uh, migrant farm worker. So he lived in a homeless camp in the Depression. And I just wrote down some figures he gave. There were 200 people living in this federal shelter that he lived in for like four weeks before he moved on to a job. And he said of them, 30 of them were sort of crippled in some way. They had been maimed, perhaps. Uh, 70 of them had lost all of their teeth. 60 of them uh, were confirmed drunkards. And it, it kind of dawned on him, he said, that we were a human junk pile. And, and he was wondering about them. And ultimately, he made the connection between the people like himself who were living in that camp and the pioneers who settled California. And now at the time he was writing this, there were still people who were old enough to have personal memory of the pioneering era in which California was really settled. And so he started asking them, you know, what were the pioneers like? You know, what kind of people were they? You know, how did they behave? And he didn't necessarily felt like he got a lot out of that. But then he said, what group of people today in California most are closest to the pioneers? And everybody's like, oh, yeah, it's the Okies. It's the fruit tramps. Right? It's the people like that. The people who succeeded and hit it big, where they were, probably weren't going to go west, young man. It was always going to be people who were misfits in some way, uh, even if just psychologically misfit, uh, you know, if nothing else. You know, in some respects, being a misfit can, can be a state of mind in a lot of ways. And we always see this with, you know, the eccentric geniuses who discover some new math theorem or something. Uh, and, you know, so... The unfit, if you might say, or the failures often play a key role in promoting new things or going off and settling new lands or other things of that nature. Now, that doesn't mean that without some elite backing that their enterprises are going to succeed. You know, at some point, the elites have to adopt your idea. At some point, elites with money have to come in behind the pioneers and really establish the towns and build the infrastructure, et cetera. But the initial aspect of the change did not come from the top down, it didn't come from the cathedral. It came from the margins. And I think we see this with Christianity as well. You know, Christianity, if you listen to James Davison Hunter, you would probably think it was some faction within the Pharisees who developed this new religion and kind of imposed it on a top-down manner. He would have said, well, it probably wasn't the most elite of the elite, but it was some rising faction of Pharisees or Sadducees who uh, were looking to get to the total top of the pecking order, and they created this innovation called Christianity. Well, it wasn't like that at all. In fact, Christianity 
seems to have uh, originated on uh, the social margins and that Jesus himself spent most of his ministry in kind of outlying areas. Uh, and then he went to the center. Uh, he went to the center. He didn't always stay in the outlying areas, but he spent a lot of time out there. And again, the apostles were famously uneducated Galileans and people like that. They were not the elites. Now, again, Christianity in part succeeded because it did make allies among the elites. Even during Jesus's ministry, there were people like Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the high council, uh, who was, you know, a supporter of Jesus. You see throughout the book of Acts and in the early church that there were wealthy people uh, who were, you know, financial contributors and others. The sociologist Rodney Stark has argued that Christianity disproportionately attracted the elites, which I can believe. He says, you know, when, I think it's Paul that, that said, not many among you were rich. He's like, well, that means at least some of them are rich, which, frankly, there should have been none of them who were rich, given how few rich people there were in the Roman Empire. The fact that there were any rich people in this sect that was emerging uh, tells you that it was disproportionately attracting the elites. Paul, of course, came from an elite background, uh, and had all the education and training. So I don't want to be dismissive of the role of the elites, of the importance of elites in spreading the ideas, right? Constantine played a key role, right, in institutionalizing Christianity in, in the empire, creating Christendom as we know it. And yet Christianity's origins, you know, its theological principles, much of it originated outside of the center. And so that's, I think, a perspective that we need to have. And again, Hunter doesn't claim explicitly that ideas always originate in the center. But if we don't think about that, we can be misled and start thinking that everything has to come out of the center. Change can be incubated in places that are on the margins to really be instantiated, definitely uh, elite allies, you know, are, are helpful, you know, whether that be military or whether that be cultural elites, media elites, uh, et cetera, uh, to make it happen. But if you're not part of the elite, that does not mean that you're not capable of coming up with some sort of an innovation, uh, cultural innovation and economic innovation that could later have tremendous cultural impact all throughout the world. It's very important. Uh, to consider. So I think that's where I feel like sometimes too much hunterism downplays or undercuts the importance of people who are outside the elites when in fact uh, people who are essentially misfits, people who are located in backwater locations, uh, people who don't hold elite positions can often have profound long-term impact once the ideas are picked up by the elites. So I just wanted to uh, give you that little tip on Hoffer. Again, True Believer is a pretty good book. It's been a long time since I read it, so I can't really give you a praise of that. The Ordeal of Change is pretty good. Uh, he's got a number of other ones. They're very short. They're very pithy, very aphoristic, and uh, always provocative. Again, you're not going to agree with everything, uh, but I, I think that it's, uh, it's short, interesting, fun reading, and he's sort of a genuinely uh, American character. He uh, got a great story there. So uh, put that uh, put that as a recommendation. Maybe I'll put a link to buy the ordeal change in the show notes, and I'll talk to you again next week.